0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth.
1: Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NabTrade's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. The number one headline doing the rounds at the moment is, is this the next afterpay, the buy now pay later stock that listed for just a dollar four years ago and recently reached $150, although it's pulled back a little bit. We are hearing this all the time. Everyone is looking for that next 10 bagger and the small cap market's not necessarily full of them, right? Many uh, many have lost their shirts in the small cap space, but it's certainly an extraordinary place to go when you're looking for that growth opportunity that so many of our investors are interested in. To talk about some of the opportunities in the small cap space, I'm joined by Sam Twydell, Portfolio Manager of the Australian Emerging Companies Fund at DNR Capital. These guys are based in Brisbane. My my former hometown Sam thanks so much for joining me
0: yeah thanks for having me on your on your podcast Gemma looking forward to having a chat
1: We uh it's harder to meet people in person at the moment but uh, it's great to chat to you and in the interest of disclosure nothing to do with former hometown I am an investor in this fund uh, via our self-managed super fund not something that I do say at the beginning of all our podcast so I should have a very good understanding of what you guys are doing, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions for the benefit of everybody else. Sam, one comment that you've made recently is that you're finding opportunity in small caps as things reopen. So the whole reopening story hasn't been uh, concentrated in the large caps. Can you tell us what you're excited about there?
0: Yeah, sure. I think um, for for investors in, in, um, in the small cap space, I mean, one of, one of the, the sort of key opportunities we see time and time again is is really taking advantage of our of our long term time horizon. And I think in, in small caps, the market can be can be very short-term focused. I think the the market likes to, you know, constantly sort of overreact to positive news, it overreacts to negative news. And um, I think certainly that the last year has been no greater example than that. And certainly with you know, with, with COVID and, and the sort of disruption that we've seen to the global economy and, and the disruption we've seen in, a, in Australia. There's been a, a lot of focus um, initially on the, the companies that have um, been sort of thriving during COVID and during uh, the sort of uh, the, the lockdown and the, the disruption that we've seen. And um, that that has meant that there's been some some great opportunities for investors who are prepared to take that longer term view, look through a lot of the sort of short term uncertainty and, um, you know, look at some of these companies that will do well uh, as the economy reopens, because I think. The, we we you know we have to keep on reminding ourselves as investors what what the most important thing in terms of driving valuations it is the long term cash flow so you know although some of these companies that have been hit hard by covid in the short term you know companies like um in 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 the travel space or in uh, in physical retailers or you know companies that have been impacted by border closures uh you know although they're facing a lot of disruption in the short term uh there there's obviously a significant opportunity as um as we see sort of an end to the end to the pandemic the um, economy reopens and uh but it is really those long-term cash flows that drives the valuation and and that's where there has been some some great opportunities to to really look through some of this sort of uncertainty in the short term uh as, as the economy reopens and i think especially uh, and some of these companies that have managed the downturn well who haven't wasted the crisis, I think and I remember even looking back at during the global financial crisis um you know those companies that did well when he came out of that period were the ones that sort of fully took advantage of the downturn invested or uh, through the downturn they had the strong balance sheets that protected themselves they might have just um, acquired distressed competitors at the bottom of the cycle uh, that really put them in a in a very good position to benefit when when the recovery comes and allow them to take market share and uh, you know if we look in uh, the small cap space in Australia some of these companies that you know, um, you know, physical retailers like LaVisa, you know, there's been a lot of focus on some of the online retailers uh, and and uh, how well they've been doing during this lockdown. But as we come out of this um, and think about the, the recovery, some of these physical retailers have these large store footprints will do very well. Uh, because I think there's going to be a lot of sort of pent up demand for some for some of those of in person activities, and you know, La Visa with a large store footprint um, internationally, Europe and the U.S. I think they they look well placed, and you know, they certainly have not wasted the crisis in terms of have acquired a, a competitor um, in, in Europe to really accelerate their expansion over there. Or if we look at you know areas like um, education, IDP education, exposed to foreign university students, student placements, English language testing, you know that's there's been no hardest hit sector than uh, than um, the the university space. Um, but we we see a lot of pent up demand there. We've been talking to lots of people in, in the industry, and uh, you know a, a lot of um, sort of pent up demand for uh, university students to get to um, get back at. Um, uh, traveling again, um, going off to those sorts of universities offshore uh, and having that experience. And uh, IDP are very well placed given the Sort of investments that they've been doing through the downturn, really putting themselves in a very strong position to take market share when the when the uh, when the economy reopens. So, I think it, it is really for 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 the investors take, taking that longer term view and thinking about a um, you know what what does the recovery look like? What 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 is the environment that you know households, corporates will be operating in not over the next six months, but more you know into 2022 and and beyond.
1: You made heaps of good points there, and it's, it is quite fascinating when you think about when COVID first hit and when we all first started to think about the implications there were a lot of things that were very obviously going to be affected and others that were not so obviously going to be affected a lot of things that thrived which no one anticipated so retail as you point out online retail was absolutely booming when so many of us thought the economy is going to fall off a cliff there'll be no discretionary expenditure and that's not where people are going to be putting their money if they have any at all when you contemplate the you know massive volume of mortgages that were put on hold the uh, the fiscal stimulus that had to be out there with JobKeeper and so on so there were plenty of things that were a massive surprise in terms of how well they fared although anyone who had popped to Bunnings during COVID would have known exactly how well Wes Farmers was going to do uh Reporting season sort of our first real opportunity to see how well everyone coped and what the real numbers were, particularly for those companies that sort of withdrew guidance and were really nervous about what the future looked like. How did you find the outcome? What were you looking at? What were you most excited about? Did you feel there were still some hangovers from COVID in there that you're worried about or was it looking pretty good?
0: Yeah, look, I think the, the reporting season overall, I would say, came in um, much better than expected. I think sort of companies have been generally beating expectations. Um, you know, Higher levels of profitability have been coming through. Uh, but I, th- I think what we, you sort of have to sort of trace back and look what's sort of been driving some of that profitability uh, and those beats to expectations because... I think we we have seen some of the share price reactions to the results sort of different. and uh, the market is starting to look through some of the some of the recent trends and start thinking about you know what is sort of sustainable longer term. And certainly, you mentioned the, the retail space. Um, the, you know, the retail um, sector generally has that. You know, some of these companies have been reporting you know some quite stunning stunning growth rates, and um, you know there's definitely been that that. Benefit that they've been seeing from, you know, the stimulus spending coming through the the JobKeeper package, uh, you know, the, the, the significant superannuation withdrawals that that have uh, have have, uh, have obviously been um, been seen, and a lot of this money has um, flown through into the into the retail space, and you know, these companies have um, reported very very strong growth rates, and uh, there's uh, there's obviously a question of how sustainable this is, and sort of you know, as we start heading into the next 12 months and the coming years, the the reversion back to a more normal level that we're likely to see. So that uh, some of those retailers that did report those very strong growth rates, you know, like many beating market expectations, actually saw fairly muted share price responses, or you know, have sort of sold off since the reporting the results. Um, but then, where we have seen um, you know stronger share price reactions, um, you know, some good performance has been in some of the the more worst hit areas of the market, where the the, the market is starting to look through some of that short term weakness and think about the the shape of the recovery, especially those companies that have um, you know managed the downturn well, some of these these reopening um, beneficiaries. Um, another interesting sort of takeaway from the re- results as well has just been. You know some of these, uh, some of the areas of I would say overvaluation in the market, and um, you know I think what, what we what we have seen is that some of the secular growth stocks over the last twelve months. Have um, have been have you know, reached very high valuations because I think in a market that you know, where the, when there's lots of uncertainty in the market, lots of uncertainty around the outlook for the economy, uh, the market has sort of gravitated towards some of these secular growth stocks, um, and, and valuations have got very high, uh, you know, especially in areas such as um, technology, for example. And we have seen some quite savage actual share price corrections in some of those areas um, given given the sort of you know, that many were priced for perfection in terms of you know, very high valuation multiples, you know, very high growth rates embedded in um, consensus expectations. so very little room for error and, uh, and you know any, any sort of chink in the story when the results come along, um, the share price can get punished quite quite harshly and I think highlights, the importance when we're looking at the small cap space of of focusing on valuation and making sure that you're staying disciplined um, and really looking to identify where there is that sort of disconnect between the share price and the the valuation.
1: It's such a good point you make and uh, an analyst whom I speak to fairly frequently uh, sent me through some analysis this morning, likes to do a bit of work. And, uh, and send it through occasionally for a second set of eyes. And he was looking at the performance of the wax stocks, which were terribly popular, as you know, 12, 18 months ago, all that everybody was talking about for a couple of years leading up to that because it was Australia's technology sector and a uh, sector of five. And uh, and having looked at those numbers, they've dramatically underperformed the ASX 200 Uh over the last six months, maybe not the last 12 months, obviously, because after pay's in there, but if you stripped out Afterpay again, the performance was not that great when you looked at it compared to the rest of the uh, sort of large cap space, which was quite interesting to see. You forget that perhaps the weakness is there with some of those. Were there any that stood out to you where the valuations are really just getting too far ahead of themselves?
0: Yeah, sure. I think you've, um, you've, you've touched on, I mean, I think definitely the the wax stocks if we look back um, over the last few years i mean these companies that they're you know they're they're great quality businesses they've um, been delivering very high growth rates um but they simply just got far too expensive i mean even these good quality businesses um can can prove to be poor investments if you overpay for them and again it sort of goes back to that um you know, in an uncertain macro environment, uncertain growth outlook, the market has gravitated in some of these sort of growth stocks, um, but the valuations got to get too high. I mean, you App, Appen, um, Altium, both of those have come under a fair bit of pressure recently, um, given the given the sort of the valuation, starting valuations that they they were on. I think um, after you mentioned afterpay, but that whole buy now pay later space um, in general. Um, you know we first started looking at that several years ago and we have been invested in in this in the space but aren't currently we we sold out of our investments um in uh we 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 were in afterpay at one point we were were in zip um as well but look the the um you know the I think you you always have to sort of trace back to the share price, and after the, some of these companies have um, you know done very well, they've outperformed significantly. The valuations have been re-rated ho- higher. You have to you know, go back to fundamentals and look at some of these uh, the share prices and, and and understand you know what what it is pricing in. Uh, and, um, and rather than sort of just getting caught up in the sort of the secular growth argument or the, the, the story, um, you have to sort of bring it back to, to valuation and, um, you know that's that's what started getting us cautious when we sort of you know started understanding or you know looking at where, where those valuations have moved to what they are pricing in in terms of the overseas expansion for some of the pineapp pay later stocks and and also the increase in competitive environment that we're seeing in that space as more capital gets attracted to the sector um, some of the barriers to entry also get uh, starting to get lowered given some of the changes that are happening in that in that industry. Uh, so that sort of makes us um, you know a bit more cautious. So I think it, it is it is important that you do sort of keep on, you know, bringing it back to the to the valuations for some of these companies because the market loves to extrapolate the the short term uh, and can um, you know, and can often get carried away on, on those valuations.
1: I'm really glad you mentioned buy now pay later because it uh, it's hard to ignore. And afterpay, as I mentioned, uh, has been in our top ten stocks. I've mentioned this a million times actually. It's been in our top ten stocks probably four years. I think really since it listed, Zip's been in there for the last 12 months and uh, many of our investors are starting to shift to a sell bias on it. It's become a bit of a trading stock rather than a buy and hold for a lot of investors. So um, we're sort of seeing a shift away from it. Uh, But you made that decision a little earlier than some of our guys. What sort of Big, longer-term themes do you look for when you're selecting stocks? We've talked about valuation. We've talked about some of the the reopening stories that I think look really interesting. You've got to kind of hold your nerve with some of them, particularly anything related to universities at the present time. But when we look at the big, longer-term themes you want to hold for a while, what are you guys excited about?
0: Yeah, look, I think um, there's there's some really interesting um, sort of – you know, thematics definitely at play. And, you know, one of, one of the areas that we've been doing a lot of work on is the whole sort of you know, decarbonisation um, thematic, uh, you know, the, the growth in renewable investment, the growth in electric vehicles, um, and the impact that's going to have on you know, supply chains, um, you know, the companies that are feeding into that space. Because, you know, if we, if we look at what's you know, happening offshore, I think Australia's a bit slower, in, in this space but certainly that the what we're seeing in um, in the in the us and in europe that, that there's um you know, significant growth in renewables in in you uh, know if we look at what's happening in, in wind turbines in solar uh, we look at what's happening in electric vehicles in terms of the transition there it's been just even been interesting looking in the last couple of weeks at the number of um of Car manufacturers that have come out and have um you know committed to going fully electric by 2030. They can obviously see that the the what's happened with Tesla and the valuation of that company. Um, and uh, you know they're, they're all sort of lining up now to you know go fully electric by 2030 uh, around that point. And so we are arguably, you know, at a major turning point, you know, one of those sort of one and Big, big sort of century changing events in terms of the um, electrification of uh, the automotive sector and that's going to have significant repercussions on that that whole supply chain i've I looking, been looking at different market forecasts and they do they do vary but we're, we're looking at sort of electric vehicles going from less than five percent of sales currently to anywhere between sort of 40 to 50 percent of sales potentially by 2030. And that, that that that's obviously a significant change as the combustion engine sort of gets gradually phased out, and uh, there's there's some really interesting um, companies that are exposed to that thematic so certainly in Australia because obviously we are uh, have a lot of natural resources that will be used in that whole supply chain. Uh, I think when you know, everyone gets caught up in the excitement of what's happening with companies like Tesla, sometimes you can. Um, Forget the the uh, the actual commodities that again to enable have to be all be required to enable that transition to uh, electric vehicles, for example. And certainly, if we look in Australia, there's a lot of the commodities, the base metals, copper, nickel, uh, lithium, you know, the rare earths. Uh, there's going to be a, a step change in the demand profile for a lot of those commodities uh, over the coming 10 years. And uh, you know, in many cases, for a number of those commodities, uh, you know, supply sort of lagging demand, so you know, a a pretty favourable price environment for a number of them.
1: I find that just such an interesting one, uh, and I literally saw a tweet on the way here, which is not the best way to do your research, but I did see a tweet on the way here which was listing the car manufacturers who who have committed to phasing out the internal combustion engine and being fully electric by 2030. Exactly what you were talking about. Uh, What I find really interesting about it is that I feel like there would be a fairly dramatic pull forward of demand as a result of that as well. If you're aware, and it doesn't seem very prevalent as a view in Australia, so perhaps we're talking internationally more so, but if you're aware that the internal combustion engine is affected not going to be sold anymore by 2030, and you are a petrol station owner, you might well think about closing up early, in which case you might think about buying an electric vehicle early because you're not going to be able to buy petrol. Uh, And you suddenly find all these flow-on effects that bring forward the demand, which I find quite quite interesting. Um, The UK is obviously committed, and I want to say Norway already has, last year, had 55% of its new car purchases were electric was it Norway i don't know if you know but uh, but there's like a surprising uh uplift in demand already and uh we don't see it here it's interesting that you're talking about that
0: yeah certainly um you know europe seems to be leading the charge and there's obviously i think um covid seems to have certainly accelerated the the transition um but the emission regulation in europe and and the fines for the autumn auto manufacturers is certainly sort of accelerating uh, the transition. I I was looking at a chart the other day, even showing that uh, electric vehicles are now outselling diesel cars in Europe Um, that sort of reached about 30% of sales more recently. uh, And that sort of up from only a few percent 12 months ago. So there's definitely been a rapid shift even in in the last year. Uh, And I think as, as um, things accelerate it, it it sort of, um, you know, that sort of, uh, S-curve adoption, adoption curve can sort of ac- accelerate and as consumer awareness continues to grow, uh, def- definitely there's, there's a, a shift happening over there that we're not yet seeing in Australia. Um, but obviously in terms of the size of the overall car market, what's happening in Europe and what's happening in the US, um, it will be key for, for what, what, what's happening in some of these supply chains. Um, and it, it's you know, even interesting, I think what's um in terms of the sort of the cost of ownership too, the, the the number of moving parts is sort of 90% less than electric vehicle. Um, you know, sort of maintenance costs are going to be significantly lower. It's going to have quite a an impact on a lot of the companies that feed into that whole supply chain. It's really going to be a significant upheaval that's going to be um, playing out for quite some time.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an interesting one. And we, we certainly have investors who are thinking about it. Linus is terribly popular. Um, and uh, and a few of the others, certainly the lithium space, we see more and more. And rare earths is quite a popular story as well among our girls. They're not so focused on copper and nickel, which is interesting. But uh, it's clearly on people's minds, but they don't necessarily play it right throughout the supply chain. The other thing that's interesting is our number one stock in the US is always Tesla. It's always Tesla. I got told off for only ever mentioning Tesla when I do my segments on Ausbiz, but it's hard to talk about anything else. The number of trades in Tesla is dramatically higher than anything else. In fact, everything else. So it uh, it, it remains the most popular way to play that angle, and yet you feel like many of the other car manufacturers who already have the infrastructure to uh, to manufacture cars uh, and, and have – you know brand awareness and and infrastructure all over the world, that's uh, that's quite compelling. Uh, may well have some opportunities there that uh, that people have undervalued.
0: Yeah, look, I think you know that there's definitely a lot of focus on on Tesla. It's definitely the banner stock for that whole um, electric vehicle sector. But I think uh, investors. Uh, um, you know, we we look, we look at where the opportunities are in terms of you know what what's attractively priced, where the where, where the sort of um, supply constraints are. You know, everyone's sort of lining up to copy Tesla now, but I think definitely um, in the uh, in the in the commodity space, it's um, yeah, you have to be you have to be very selective, um, but. Look, there's, there's definitely some interesting opportunities emerging in, um, in in Australia where there's just constrained supply. I mean, I mentioned um, you know copper, nickel. You know, we, we invest in a company called IGO, a you know, very low-cost producer of nickel. They're currently in the process of acquiring a. Um, lithium asset uh, um, currently that's going to sort of transform the business into a, a, a pure play sort of um, commodity producer supplying into the battery um, space um but what what's what's interesting about this one is that it's um you know you're buying it on on you know lo- long reserve life low cost producer generating strong cash flows um, strong balance sheet um, which Obviously, quite different to some of the uh, the the stocks. For example, you know Tesla, which um, you know trading on very high valuations.
1: Yeah, I've I've seen some analysis saying that it's literally impossible for Tesla to grow into its valuation unless we all buy four cars. But uh, (laughs) it'll be interesting to see. We've all been wrong about that one before. You talk about focusing on quality in the small cap space, and you know we're talking about sectors that have extraordinary growth potential when we talk about decarbonisation, electric vehicles, those sorts of things. So the big themes have this incredible growth potential, but when you're focused on quality, how do you define that? How do you identify it, particularly in these high-growth areas?
0: Look, it's, it's a, it's a great, great question because I think um, one of the key observations when we look across the small-cap space is that there is um, significant divergence in quality um i think uh, uh, when when we sort of we 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 when we look at the small cap space we have a measure of quality uh, ret- uh, the return on invested capital which is an accounting metric that looks at you know the, the dollar of, of um profits you earn on each, each incremental dollar of capital that you put into the company and if you if you rank the whole small cap universe um, there's a, a large portion of the, the index um, you know, over over sort of you know nearly twenty percent generating negative returns. Um, about forty percent of the index generate returns below their cost of capital, which means that you know they're not generating a lot of return for shareholders. So you you, the, you know so the, so the point is you have to be very careful on looking at quality and really sort of screening out a lot of the lower quality companies. That you just wouldn't want to invest in. And, you know, for us, how, how how do we define quality? I think, you know, we, we have a um a process with our emerging companies funding at DNR capital that we put each company through. I think it's important to have that consistent, repeatable uh, framework, a quality framework that you put each company through. And we rank each company based on uh, five key quality characteristics. We think that these are the characteristics that define a good quality company. So you know, we're looking for companies that are have, have a, um, a strong position in their, in their industry, they've got good levels of pricing power. Uh, we're looking for companies that have got strong balance sheets, um, You know, incredibly important in the small cap space, um, that they have that, that strength in the balance sheet that protects the downside. Um, we, we prefer companies that have net cash on the balance sheet, it gives them that optionality. To, to reinvest back into the business uh, protects the downside when unfortunately you know, unforeseen events come along such as for example um, you know, COVID last year and um, and we we look for companies that have got you know, strong strong management and you know, we have a we we like it when companies have um, you know management that have a lot of equity in the business that have that alignment. With investors, which is, which is very important, it means that they're really thinking about the long-term success of the company rather than trying to sort of maximize short-term incentives. So, you know, we really like those businesses where the, the founders are in there or the management have a lot of equity, a lot of skin in the game. And they, they think in terms of you know, a very um, clear um, long-term strategy, sensible allocators of capital. Uh, and then we look for you know, companies that have high earnings quality. And what what we mean there is that they're, they're not engaged in sort of accounting shenanigans, that they're generating good returns uh, relative to, to, their, um, to their assets um, and that they're converting the earnings into cash flows, so they're generating good cash flow that allows us to value these businesses. And uh, and we also look for companies that have low ESG risks as well, uh, and we think that that needs to be factored into the forecasts and the valuation. So it's really looking at those 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 quality characteristics and ranking those businesses based on those that sort of quality framework um, is, is really key, so that you can screen out a lot of the the lower quality companies because uh, there's a In the small cash space, lots of different types of companies, lots of different types of business models, um, but you you need to put them through that um, sort of consistent quality framework so that you can really um, make sure that you're uh, focusing in on the right part of the market to find these good quality companies you want to own for the long term.
1: That's quite a long list of things that you consider. It, um, I know you said five. I felt like I counted about eleven. Uh, you mentioned ESG as a framework, uh, which we don't usually hear in the small cap space, or not so frequently. What are the key ESG focuses that you have?
0: Yeah, look, I think it's obviously um, getting a, a lot more attention. But um, when we when we look at ESG, we're looking at some of the environmental, social, governance issues. Uh, that can impact on the, uh, the our forecasts and the and the valuation. And I think you know, obviously a great way is to, to give you provide an example that sort of brings it to life. But I think if you if you certainly if you're looking at a um, thermal coal mine, for example, uh, and valuing that company, you're not going to put it on the same kind of valuation or use the same kind of discount rate to to value a thermal coal mine as you are a you know company that might be providing parts into um, the renewables industry, for example. You know, so that, you know, the fact that a thermal coal mine could become a stranded asset one day needs to be reflected into the valuation and, and how, you, how you look at those types of companies.
1: Yeah, that's a really good answer. I find, I find this area absolutely fascinating. It doesn't seem to be top of mind for a lot of retail investors, but I speak uh, frequently with asset consultants and people who manage and deal with large superannuation funds and so on. And it's an increasingly, important topic. And if you are a retail investor and you don't care about this stuff, that's absolutely fine. But you may find that the companies you invest in become stranded assets. No one wants to hold them any more because the large mandates are moving away from those sorts of assets. Uh, as an example, and I won't name many names, but a couple of companies that you would not put at the top of your list from an ESG perspective. Uh, so they, uh, they um, one is uh, an energy company, uh, so dealing with oil, and, uh, and one is another that is in an industry that's sort of universally recognised as being not ethical. Both have asked for their staff super funds to have an ESG framework, which I find fascinating. So even if your business is not uh, sort of uh, leading the pack in terms of ESG, you may well feel that you only want to be invested in those sorts of companies.
0: Yeah, look, I think it's definitely going to be um, you know, a very interesting space to be to be watching, and I think the um, that we're that we're seeing it definitely in terms of how um, we, we sort of look to understand the supply chains. Um, you know, if we look at some of the commodity space again, it's interesting. Even looking at say iron ore, for example, which is obviously a key commodity for Australia, obviously a crucial commodity for the. You know the nation and the and the budget and the amount of royalties that we extract from it, and obviously lots of companies involved. But if we even look at, say, how steel is produced and the, and the carbon intensity of steel production, um, it it all steel is not created equal, although it is it's sort of sold at similar prices. And I think what you will start seeing is uh, you know greater differentiation as as we start looking to understand the supply chain more, look to understand the the carbon intensity of different types of steel and how it's produced depending on you know different grades of iron ore uh, and there's an opportunity for companies to start capturing um the, the price premium um you know if if the carbon intensity is lower um, using their particular type of you know high grade iron ore for example or you know different types of um you know how, how it's actually made in terms of the actual production process if you're producing aluminium Um, using thermal coal generation versus um, hydropower. You know, in the past, they might not have been able to differentiate between the price they were getting for that aluminium, but I think that is starting to change now and even using new types of technology, blockchain blockchain technology, you can start tracing through the supply chain, allowing you to sort of differentiate your product and allow the, the actual producer to start capturing some of that premium
1: yeah, it's such an interesting example. I think investors are going to have to think about it more, even if it is uh, perhaps not top of mind when you're looking at a company straight up. So you've talked about a whole variety of different sectors, a whole variety of different companies, uh, so many different themes to contemplate as well. Do you have any particular favourite portfolio inclusions at the moment or things that you're really pleased you've gotten rid of?
0: Yeah, um, yeah look, I think we we, we touched on some of the opportunities I, I, I certainly i do i do think that the the, the real opportunities are uh, continuing to take that long-term view and yes, you know, thinking about some of these companies that will you know really do well um during the recovery and um and and to the pandemic and i think um, there's, there's obviously lots of uncertainty still in the short term. There's going to be some bumps along the road in terms of the vaccination program. Um, but you know, when we look at some of these companies like, you know, IDP Education, for example, you know, a clear leader in English language testing and student placement services, uh, really helping. Uh, foreign university students with their sort of ambition to study offshore. A you know, real global leader in that space, and a clear industry leader, generates very high returns, high levels of profitability, a strong balance sheet, and uh, and they've continued to invest through the downturn, and they look very well placed as as the recovery comes. So you know we're looking for those companies that we think will will take market share during during the recovery. Um, and uh, I think, in many ways, a lot, um, people, the market will um, underestimate the, the, the sort of the, the speed of the, the um, of the recovery and the opportunity to take market share for, for companies like that and the, those ones that have really managed the downturn well. IDP have um, done very well because it's a it's a it's it's a very much a global business. They aren't dependent on you know any one country necessarily. They have relationships with universities in uh, you know, the UK, uh, Canada, uh, the US, and uh, you know, whilst um, foreign university students have more challenges coming into Australia currently, uh, UK and Canada are st- um, very much open and um, you know, Australia's lost in the short term albeit. be a- Um, sort of the UK, Canada's gain as more students flow into those markets. So, you know, although um, borders being closed here is sort of preventing that recovery in that space, you know, some of these more global companies like IDP will do very well. Um, And I think that sort of goes into as well, the the different shape of the recovery we're going to see generally for a range of different companies coming out of this, um, out out of the crisis, because um, I think everyone's looking at the, the the speed of the vaccination program that we're seeing um, in different markets, and it is happening at, at different at different rates, and it, it means that the sort of the speed of the recovery will differ depending on the market. I think certainly UK is doing very well, the US is stepping up, and uh, I think some of those countries will 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 sort of emerge from it quicker. And uh, I think Australia is a very interesting sort of test case for what can happen um, as the economy reopens up and the the boom that we've seen here in the domestic economy, what can can happen to some of those um, markets as they start reopening up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one trend that has come out of COVID, uh, and I'm sure you've observed this, is that there's an extraordinary wave of new investors uh, in the market. All of a sudden. So the last twelve months, uh, certainly we're in Abitra have just in just an astonishing growth in new investors. But it's true all over the world in the US, the UK, uh, all major markets have seen this incredible influx of new traders and new investors. For us, it's mostly investors. To be frank, we haven't seen a lot of wild trading volumes or anything like that. We haven't certainly seen the uplift in day traders that uh, that everyone likes to talk about with Robin Hood. Uh, most people are sort of buying and holding things they like. But a lot of it has been outside the ASX two hundred. It has been people buying uh, the exciting, sexy, high growth stocks that you've been talking about. Given you've been doing this for a while, do you have any advice for investors who are new, particularly to the small cap space?
0: Yeah, look, I think um, where the, the advice I'd have is to be to be very careful where there is a lot of excitement a lot of um you know sort of speculation in, involved in some of those sort of more unproven business models um that you know don't necessarily have the track records uh they don't have the revenue uh, I think there's a there's a lot of um sort of speculation sometimes I think around the the, the sort of the, the concept stocks uh certainly in in the small cap space, There's uh, there's no shortage of um you know promotional management teams you know companies that are, are looking to you know, talk up the, the 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 sort of the opportunity the size of the addressable market um you know the the all the all the um you know the great potential that's all in the future um but i think it's some some um you know and and, and you can, and a lot of investors can get sort of drawn into that excitement and and the you know the promise of the big rewards on offer by companies you know, sort of um you know putting themselves out there as the potential next afterpay. Um, but I think it it's you need to get back to the fundamentals, back to understanding the company, looking at uh, really understanding the business, the industry, the competitive environment, um, and making sure that you are you know, being careful with some of those sort of companies that, that are unproven. Uh, they don't necessarily have the track record and um and you know it, it's all sort of um you know based on growth tomorrow as opposed to you know the the earnings and the cash flow that they're generating um you know right now and that's certainly where we've been seeing a lot of the opportunities um for us over in in over the, sort of the last 6 months has been Rotating our portfolio away from some of those more sort of secular growth stocks and and into the the sort of more value areas of the market. You know, some of these companies that have been left behind uh, and and that will do well as the the economic recovery continues to come through offshore and as the economy reopens up.
1: I think that's really good advice. Very practical. For a lot of people who, who would be new to the market, learning about valuations is always a bit of a challenge, but, um, but plenty of uh, interesting ways to learn. I think there'll be uh, a comment about it somewhere in the blurb on this, but we have just launched the Academy on NAB Trade, by the way, so if you haven't had a look, please do. There's plenty of really great insights there and information to help you when you are learning to invest and trade for the first time. Sam, you featured on Ausbiz, which is the uh, streaming channel, It's also available on the Channel 7 app, actually, if you have a smart TV. Uh, DNR Capital, you produce a heap of great content talking about markets and portfolio ideas and the things that you're working on. How do people find out more about you guys and how you're managing your portfolio in this environment?
0: Sure. So uh, probably the the best place to start, you can go to our our website, um, dnrcapital.com.au. We do publish a a fair bit of material uh, that we publish each month and, uh, various sort of uh, newsletters, videos. Um, also, we're quite active on uh, on LinkedIn as well, so you can follow us, DNR Capital, on, on LinkedIn. And there's a lot of information we put out on there as well. So um, yeah, you'll you'll find plenty of material there. So please reach out on on via those channels if you'd like any further information.
1: Sam Twydell from DNR Capital. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much, Gemma. It's been nice chatting. And yeah, th- thank you very much for having me on your on your podcast.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received some awesome feedback and we love getting your questions. So please just email us at yourwealthnab.com.au. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthnab.com.au please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.